So, welcome to Plodcast, episode 52. And if you uh, learned these things when you were a little child, there are 52 weeks in a year, which means that we've been doing the Plodcast for one year as of this episode. So when you're listening to this one, you've been listening to a year's worth. So, uh, welcome. Thanks for thanks for accompanying me. Thanks for coming along. Thanks for listening. Uh, very grateful. So I want to talk a little bit um, this, uh, podcast, this podcast about the writing life, about the writing life. Uh, Mark Twain once defined a uh, classic as a book that everyone wanted to have read, but nobody wanted to read. Um, there's a similar uh, setup with regard to writing. Uh, many people want to have been a writer, but they don't want to actually write. They, they want the glory that comes from having been a writer, having gotten something published or gotten something published in a magazine or gotten a book published, but they don't want to submit themselves to the arduous process of actually sitting down to write. They would like the contract from a big New York publisher to sort of fall out of the sky on them. And then if they've been, if they are blandished with enough incentives then they will then they will sit down to uh, to crank out the book. Um, they but they need to be incentivized first. Well, well that's not the way it works. Um, uh, it's the same way with writing as with um, the blues. You've got to you've got to pay your dues, and paying your dues has a number of layers. So um, if you want to be a writer. Um, as I most certainly did. I wanted to, I remember back in grade school, wanting to make books. I grew up in a bookish family. I grew up where books were around, but it wasn't just enough for me to have books around that I could read. Uh, there was something in me that wanted to make them. Uh, a book is a wonderful thing, but I don't want to just read them. Uh, a book is a wonderful thing. I want to make them. I, I, I want to write them. I want to be involved in the production of them. And uh, that was a, a, a desire that I remember from, from very early on. I think I was probably, probably in sixth grade when I first noticed it. Uh, suppose you are, um, have that desire. You, you want to be a writer. What do you do? Uh, well, there are many, many things that you do, and, and I've, I've written a book on this called Wordsmithy, uh, where I give all kinds of uh, unsolicited advice to people who want to be writers. But let me just uh, lay out three things here. Number one, uh, pay attention to your schooling. If you're still uh, uh, pre-college, K through 12, somewhere in there, uh, pay attention to your schooling. Do your work, write your essays, do your lessons. Uh, those are all there for a reason. And if the school is a rigorous school, they're going to be giving you all kinds of building blocks uh, that will be useful to you later on. Don't be basically. Don't be too uh, proud to be a learner. And the second stage, I'll. I'll I'll come back and cover all these. The second stage is very comparable, is comparable to the first one. And that is, uh, you don't want to be the writer 
who has written more books than you've read. Uh, so independent of school, outside of school, um, and after you've graduated, after you're through high school, after you're through college, you need to be a reader. Um, you can't be the kind of person who just sort of arrives in the writing scene not having read what everybody else has been writing over the centuries, over millennia, and say, here, I, I've got all this wisdom in my head. Let me write it. Let me spill it out and, and have you all ooh and ah over it. Um, writers who are worth reading, writers who are worth paying attention to, are writers who were good little boys and girls in their schooling and paid attention, did what they were told, fulfilled their assignments. And secondly, when they were done with their formal education, they continued learning from other people who uh, were better than they are. Uh, so they, they're, they're hungry to pick up tips. They're hungry to learn how to do it. So pay attention, number one, pay attention in school. Number two, uh, give yourself to books. Give yourself to the reading of books. And then number three, uh, write. Don't write after you've got the contract. Don't write after you've gotten your big break. First, it's very unlikely that you will get a big break if you're not, if you're not sitting down producing something regularly, if you're not sitting down writing something every day. It's not likely at all that you're going to get a you, that you're going to get a big break, and if you get a big break, um, you know, you uh, you land your airplane in the Hudson River or something, and uh, and people are chasing you for your story, or if you uh, do something unrelated to writing and and people uh, something marvelous and people want to hear your story, then they'll, then they'll hire someone to um, your name will be up in lights with so-and-so, who, who was the writer who told your story. Um, if you want to write, you want to start, start writing. You want to start writing with no promise of any fulfillment, you, no promise of any contract, no promise of any kind of publication. You simply write. Um, and, um, and part of my philosophy of, of this is to commit yourself to writing a certain amount and I'm a great plotter. I, I believe in plotting, chipping away at, you know, one thing a day. One thing I've, I've done before is uh, on a project where I'll, I'll say to myself, okay, all I want to do is be 100 words ahead at the end of today. By the time I go to bed, I want to have added 100 words to this file of the book, uh, the book I'm writing. So I sit down, open up the file. Let's say there's um, 575 words in that chapter. I don't want to go to bed until there are 675 words in that chapter. It's very easy to track, very easy to follow, and just chip away. You might say, that sounds like for, take forever. Well, take that 100 words a day. 100 words a day after 10 days, after a week and a half, you've got 1,000 words. Okay, after 20 days, you've got 2,000 words. A modest book is 40,000 words. Um, just sit down and start writing. Start chipping away. And then if you say, but I have nothing 
to say. I have nothing whatever to say. Well, then the question is, so why do you want to be a writer? Well, a few episodes ago, I talked about the Revoice Conference in St. Louis, and one of the organizers of the conference and one of the speakers at the conference is a gent named Wesley Hill, and he recently wrote a book called Spiritual Friendship. And in this book, Spiritual Friendship, he's advocating the gay celibate position where people who are, as they would say, same-sex attracted but who believe that the Bible prohibits any kind of um, um, overt sexual expression of that sexuality. Nevertheless, they want to identify as gay and celibate. Um, if they do so, what do they, what do they do about their need for companionship? And one of the things that uh, Hill does is he proposes the classic uh, Christian approach to friendship as being a solution to a gay celibate uh, a gay celibate's uh, challenges or dilemma. Uh, and he has written a book um, that is intended to argue for that. And, and what, what Hill is building up to is he wants to get at some point to oath-bound friendships. So it's not just, oh, you're my, you're my friend while I'm in med school and then we drifted apart or... Uh, when we were living in this city, we were next-door neighbors, and we became friends, and then we lost touch. Um, Wesley Hill wants to argue for a friendship that is more intentional than that, and that is sealed and bounded in some way with an oath, uh, the same way, uh, or not the same way, in an analogous way uh, to marriage. The difficulty with uh, his approach is that uh, although he alludes to and interacts some with C.S. Lewis's uh, book, The Four Loves, uh, and Lewis's treatment of friendship, um, he, he basically bypasses uh, Lewis's central description of friendship. Uh, the posture of friends, according to Lewis, is shoulder to shoulder. Now, and Lewis is saying that friendship is one of the great blessings of uh, human existence. He doesn't have a trivial or a light view of friendship at all. But uh, Lewis argues that the basic posture of friendship is shoulder to shoulder. The friends, uh, these friends who are passionately committed to one another are passionately committed to one another because of their shared interest in epic poetry or because they served in the Navy together, shoulder to shoulder, they had a common mission, or they worked together uh, at the same company, and they're working shoulder to shoulder, and they become fast friends. Lewis argues that the uh, basic posture of eros, of um, erotic love, is face to face. So uh, erotic love is face to face. Friendship love is shoulder to shoulder. Uh, what Wesley Hill wants to do, and I think it's a, a profound mistake. I think it is, and I think it's going to result in a lot of uh, tragedy and, and hurt. Is he tries to meld the face-to-face -face demeanor of eros uh, together with friendship, the concepts and categories of friendship. I don't think that that's going to work, and I think that. Um, 
there are going to be some devastations, uh, one of which um, one of which Wesley Hill even describes in detail um, in this book where he was friends with someone. He had a straight friend who got interested in a girl and he paired off with the girl. And Wesley Hill was devastated and he realizes after the fact that he had been in love with this friend. So what he had been interpreting as shoulder-to-shoulder friendship was actually face-to-face eros. And it was face-to-face eros, unbeknownst to Hill. Um, that was a sur- sort of suppressed knowledge and completely unbeknownst to his uh, heterosexual friend um, who was not thinking in those categories at all. So um, I think spiritual friendship is a misbegotten book. It's a bad idea. We don't really want to go there. We don't want to try to go there. If we do, the end result is going to be, I'm, I'm afraid, is going to be continued um, devastation, hurt, self-loathing. So here we are, episode 52 of the podcast, in our section on hamartiology. And, of course, we are considering the word for sin. Um, this is the general category of this column, but it's also the word for sin. So hamartano is the verb for sinning, and hamartia is the, is the noun. So in our continued study of hamartia, we find that Christ gave himself for our sins, Galatians 1.4. Paul later asks if Christ is a minister of sin just because we are found to be sinners and seeking to be justified by Christ, 2.17. No, God's purpose through the law, and that is as a forerunner of the gospel, is to conclude everyone under sin so that anyone who believes in Jesus might receive the promises. That's in 3.22, all in Galatians. In the next book, Ephesians, Hamartia, is used once, and hamartano uh, only once. With the former, Paul says that before conversion, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. That's in Ephesians 2.1. And then the latter instance, uh, hamartano, is found where we are commanded to be angry, but to avoid sinning in that anger, 4.26. Be angry and sin not. Be angry, and if you're angry and your anger is a righteous anger and it's not a sinful anger, then don't let the sun go down on it because um, anger is like manna. Even if it's righteous, it goes bad overnight. Uh, don't, don't try to keep it. God in the time of the sickness. God in the doctor too. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.